0: And I'm Tristan Jutra.
1: And we are your human hosts. On today's episode, we discuss what US President Joe Biden's executive order on AI actually does. And we wonder is big tech lying about AI's risks to humanity? Just like us to be super chill as always. <laughs> All right, Tristan, we've got to say hello to our lovely listeners in Germany. Hello. Guten Tag. Look at you, TJ, with the German. I'm so
0: impressed. Or, or "Hallo" with an A instead of an E. It's
1: just not
0: not as distinct. Guten Tag.
1: Well, hopefully we nailed it. Hello and thank you for listening. Now Tristan, we do not have shame. a we <laughs> we do have a wee bit of follow-up before we really jump in, don't we?
0: So last week we talked about Google's project Gemini and how it was going to be a game changer, powering their various AI initiatives. One other initiative, next generation initiative that we failed to mention at that time, that was uh, from OpenAI, the developer of ChatGPT. Apparently they had tried to create a new AI model that was gonna be more efficient and it was codenamed named Arrakis. You may recognize that name because that's the desert planet from the sci-fi novel and movies, Dune. So Project Arrakis was aimed at reducing the cost and resource consumption of AI applications like ChatGPT, but it was scrapped earlier this year because it didn't meet the expectations of OpenAI and its sugar daddy, Microsoft. OpenAI has grown rapidly thanks to ChatGPT, and its CEO, Sam Altman, expects to generate $1.3 billion in revenue per year. However, it also faces competition from Google, which has been developing its new And next-generation rival AI model Gemini, and scrutiny uh, from an AI summit, which is actually under uh, going taking place right now,
1: as we
0: speak. As we speak. So OpenAI, I mean, as a research organization, there's a nonprofit and a for-profit component of OpenAI, but they aim to eventually create AGI, artificial general intelligence, which can perform any task that humans can. And they claim that they are committed to ensuring that AI is aligned with human values and can benefit all of humanity. And that ties into what we'll be talking about today regarding the world of regulation in AI.
1: We certainly have a lot to cover. And I think probably a good jumping off point is what President Biden's executive order on AI does and what it really means for us all. I think it's easy sometimes to just say oh an executive order was signed and then nobody really goes into it or knows what it actually does because sometimes it can be very frustrating in the states to have an executive order sign and then you're like now what <laughs> so let's jump in Tristan because this just happened so basically he has signed a new executive order creating new standards of safety and privacy protections for artificial intelligence so this is a move that the White House insists will safeguard Americans' information, promote innovation and competition, and advance U.S. leadership in the industry. So Biden said the executive order was, quote, the most significant action any government anywhere in the world has ever taken on AI safety, security, and trust. And I also just want to point out for you that he also said that AI is all around us. He (laughs) didn't say it like (laughs) that. Yeah, it's behind you. I wish he would have delivered the line like that, but he didn't. But... (laughs) It kind of made me smile because, you know, it's like, I guess at least his aides get it. I don't know if he really gets it, but
0: I mean, it might be in his phone, might in be in his, his phone.
1: tracker. Exactly. And something else he did mention was that, you know, his concern around deep fakes and the need for governance. And, you know, we've talked a lot about deep fakes and the like. So I found that a little bit interesting, but let's get into what this executive order actually does. And I will start with that. It requires the developers of AI systems that they share their safety test results with the federal government. So this is in line with the Defense Production Act that requires companies developing a model that could pose a risk to national security, national public health, or the national economic system, that they notify the federal government and share those results, which is kind of interesting. But, I mean, do you think there's any kind of issue with this part of it?
0: Well. The idea with anything like this is to enhance transparency and accountability, but the argument always from the business world is this sort of requirement could potentially stifle innovation. And Furthermore, companies might be hesitant to share proprietary information, fearing it could be leaked or misused. I mean, I think that's going to be a common theme with some of these Regulatory suggestions uh, as as we go through here, the all, the push pull between regulatory desires and business interests. Some people are always concerned about giving too much power to government because that's all well and good when your team's in, in you know in, in control of things. But but when those same powers, you always want to think about those same powers being afforded to the other team when they get in, as they usually do eventually. That's that's the concern.
1: At least this current administration, they've said they're, you know, with this executive order, they're also going to develop standards for biological synthesis screening aimed at protecting against the risky use of AI for creating dangerous biological materials, because that's probably something most of us don't really think about. And these standards are going to be a condition of federal funding, which is really, I think, important to kind of underpin there.
0: So are they going to retroactively put that onto like human factors in developing and testing biological agents that may or may not have leaked from labs a few years ago.
1: Da, da, da. Are, you, are you being a conspiracy theorist? What are you talking about, Tristan? Oh, it's not so
0: conspiracy anymore, apparently.
1: Uh, yeah, I know. It, it used to
0: be. Yeah, anyhow.
1: No, that's, this is grandfathered a in, baby, like yeah, like helmets in the NHL. It's a grandfathered in situation. That's a whole different
0: podcast. Yeah. Uh, above our pay grade. Well, it's obviously a crucial step in, a cure, in ensuring biosecurity. I mean, not the, um, you know, I guess one of the key reasons is that AI tools can just can be so effective with analyzing and synthesizing. We talked about protein folding efforts, for example. So yeah, this is definitely an important area. But again, it comes down to the the burdens that it imposes, in this case, on research institutes and uh, institutions and, of course, companies, because they would need to comply with these standards, which could slow down research and development efforts. So... How, for example, if we were using AI when trying to come up with, you know, rapid response, you know, treatments, whether it's you know vaccines or uh, uh, other sort of therapeutics for say a, a COVID-like pandemic, if if those sorts of rules had been in place then, because AI was being involved, would that have actually slowed things down? Th- who knows, right? It's hard to it's hard to go back in time and reapply that. But that, I think that is the concern. Not not to mention like defensive. Aspects too. Now that being said, I think the government has also shown that when there's in a crisis situation, they're willing to relax the rules. So, say for example, there was a biological uh, threat, whether natural or man-made, in terms of biological warfare, and research institutions needed to like get things going, AI or otherwise, to try and combat said threats. I suspect that regardless of any of these sort of regulations that may may be imposed uh, on the use of AI in biological research, that they might loosen those up a bit to be able to respond more quickly. Again, all of these things are a little bit fraught because once things are out in the world, who knows you know, what the second and third order effects actually
1: are. And that's it's going to be a little bit of a wait and see because to your point, there's, there's a lot of different safety boards and regulatory bodies that are going to be (laughs) kind of included in this framework. It's a great make-work project, for sure. It is. It is. So this is a little bit of how it's maybe going to work. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is going to set standards for safety before public release. And the Department of Homeland Security will apply those standards to critical infrastructure sectors and establish an AI safety and security board. So there's another board that's going to be established. And then... There's more. The Department of Energy will work with DHS, because we need to throw a couple more sectors in there, to address the threats of infrastructure as well as chemical, biological, and other types of risks. So to your earlier point, how quick can all these governing bodies get together and say, yes, this is passing regulation and standards, or no, or we have a problem, and will they maybe fast-track some things if if some stuff goes down, if you know what I mean. So it's going to be maybe a little bit of uh, give and take here, and, and hopefully we don't have to see how quick they can work together. You know what I'm saying?
0: Well, government bureaucracies are, are going to bureaucracy no matter what. Some younger listeners may not remember a time before the existence of the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, was basically formed in response to the 9-11 attacks as a way to corral the resources of a number of government agencies and give some you know, some extraordinary authority to get things done and respond to terror threats, uh, threats to the borders and whatnot. There was also a time before ICE existed. There was a time before um, uh, any, almost any agency you can think of, there, there was a time before they existed. And once the oh, like space force is, a, is another example, although one could argue space force is basically an outgrowth of the air force, et cetera. But you notice how even people were, were, you know, teasing the previous administration for the creation of space force, the current administration didn't get, get rid of it. Like it's very seldom do these new bureaucracies or new government institutions go away. So one you know, These sorts of initiatives can definitely help ensure the safety and security of AI systems. How quickly is anyone's guess, as you point out? It may, you know, may lead to bureaucratic delays and hinder the timely deployment of beneficial AI technologies. So I think another question that might arise from this is how long do you think it's going to be before the government says, the federal government says, you know what, we actually need a department of AI
1: Mm -hmm.
0: to you know, help expedite and, you know, serve as a nexus uh, for communication and data sharing between different government departments. I mean, data sharing in itself has different implications, uh, which we'll get into a little bit as well. But when it comes to research, yeah, great, great idea. But the more of these agencies you have in play, the more chance there is for sl- slowdown, miscommunication you know territorialism, and people protecting their own uh, turf and all that sort of thing so is it is do you think the, in the administration will actually proactively create an ai agency or are they going to wait until something really bad happens and then they've got to reactively create an agency to you know help streamline the communication between you know these different you know, departments
1: i just want to know what we would call the department of ai day or die, 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 die. <laughs> oh boy but it's not spelt die our listeners are smart they get it <laughs> well the order is also supposed to strengthen privacy by evaluating how agencies collect and use commercially available info and develop guidelines for federal agencies to evaluate how effective privacy ensuring techniques actually are so the administration also wants to strengthen privacy-preserving tech and research, like, say, crypto, cryptography. Like how I was going to say cryptocurrencies, basically. <laughs> cryptography tools. So, you know, again, it's kind of a little bit of, this is all nice to say, but let's see how effective any of this actually is.
0: <laughs> well, I think we can all agree that enhancing and protecting privacy uh, is essential. And to my earlier point regarding Data sharing between government agencies, you know, how much will actually people's personally identifiable information be a part of that and sharing. I remember it was probably 30 years ago here in Canada when there was a big uproar regarding the sharing of personally identifiable information between our uh, the Canadian Border Services Agency and... Revenue Canada, now known as CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, which is in charge of taxation, and there was concerns about, oh well, these independent organizations were sharing information about people's movements and how much time they're spending in different countries, et cetera, et cetera, and how does you know the tax implications? And it's like people were you know a little concerned about that, and you could actually write in write a letter and and say, I want. My dossier. I want to know all the information you have about me with these different from these different government departments. And it's kind of interesting. I actually got mine and it's neat to see. But so I guess the idea is what sort of transparency tools will be available to the public to ensure that their privacy is being protected. Um, But you know, there is the risk of over-regulation. You know, overly stringent privacy regulations might hinder the development and deployment of AI technologies that rely on data analysis. So then you get into uh, possible solutions like differential privacy. That's something that Apple was talking about a few years ago. Uh, Again, you know, one criticism of of Google when it comes to a lot of things they do is you know, they have access to so much of our personal information and everything's in the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. And Apple was always trying to differentiate themselves, saying, "Okay, everything's being done on device, and when they do put stuff in the cloud, it's not personally identifiable." You know, so there's all there's this whole market dynamics and market positioning aspect of it. But then you can you also look at places like the EU where they are they they love to regulate there. But then. You know, you end up having to like click all these pop-ups to you know, about cookies and GDPR and this and that and the other thing, and that really can, you know, sully the entire experience of just like surfing the web. So now, when we're going to be using AI tools, are we going to have to do all sorts of like additional clicks and checks and this and that to be like, yes, I agree, it's okay, do this, do that, and whatever? Or is this more going to be behind the scenes stuff that you know? There's, I mean, again, how are they going to enforce it? Are they going to, The government can say, okay, well show us how you're protecting your privacy and you know like the cryptography side of things are they following you know best practices and standards it's it's crazy when you look into how large companies are run sometimes you think oh large companies they know exactly what they're doing and then you start to work for one of them and you're like Mm -hmm. oh boy (laughs) that's not best practice (laughs) so
1: no and i uh, can see both sides of this because mm -hmm. you know you touched on the cra thing with the the border patrol and um Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know if anybody else has had this issue, but I find as somebody, it's, it's, I know I get a rap of like, my dad is out there anyway, take it. But Mm -hmm. here's the thing. And I'll take travel as a perfect example. These agencies do not talk to each other. So like, I have a nexus as an example, right? Mm -hmm. Nexus is an agreement within North America, particularly the US and Canada, but it works across North America, where it allows you, it's like a pre-check it allows you to travel a little bit quicker through the airports, quicker over the border into the Nexus lane, all this kind of stuff. Okay. So when you apply for that, there's set, you know, you got to fill out the paperwork, you got to do this and that. But they don't communicate with, say, like the federal aviation type sector. So, like, you know, my address and such, I must have changed it like three times on that application. When it came to again, it was still an original address from when I was living in Vancouver. And I was like, guys, like, I've been allowed to travel on this (laughs) through flights and nobody has questioned, like everything is supposed to match to the letter. Nobody's verifying this stuff. When I, uh, since I've immigrated to the States, there's, here's another example for you. You have to, if I want to apply for citizenship at some point, I'm going to have to write down all the times in the last, I want to say it's five or seven years that I have traveled in and out of the country, whether by land or by air. You can only get your your passport stamped if you travel by air. They don't stamp it at land border right. crossings. So I got scolded one day when I was crossing from Vancouver from YVR to go to Phoenix. And she said, you know, you're going to have to get these stamped. And I was like, oh, OK. So then, like an idiot, the next time I traveled via a land crossing... He was like we don't stamp passports at at land cross and i was like you know you guys aren't talking to each other and you're all basically the same it's travel across a border i don't care whether it's by plane or by car and it's like oh my god so just not to go down a whole rabbit hole here but i can see what i'm trying to say is i can see both sides because it's like yes i understand our information and our privacy is very important but like ease of use for the end consumer at the end of the day for me is still like guys really you're not friggin talking to each other like that's why maybe that should
0: be a relief for people with privacy concerns because like half of them are out to date anyway
1: don't worry (laughs) nobody they're not checking your data anyway good grief but it's like maybe to your earlier point of do we need a department of ai yeah probably because it should Mm. probably all be centralized because clearly (laughs) they're not they're not talking to each other tristan Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Listen, I watch a lot of Dateline and you hear this all the time. Police departments between states or even between counties within the same state don't talk to each other. Someone could be wanted one place and if there's not the right the right thing put in place that says they're wanted, the other county doesn't know. And it's like, whoops, well, whatever, missed it. So it's like there is this is going to be really wide reaching because we're not just talking about one country now. We're talking about helping regulate, regulate this across and make it easier for all countries tristan and with that you know the order also tries to address things like algorithmic discrimination which we've talked a little bit about before so the department of justice and federal civil rights offices can best investigate and prosecute civil rights violations related to ai and the administration intends to develop best practices of the use of ai in sentencing pre-trial release and detention risk assessments and the like my gosh, like surveillance and crime forecasting among, I don't even know, a million other parts of the criminal justice system. Like these are things that most of us aren't even thinking about, Tristan.
0: Well, I mean, there certain bureaucracies have been thinking about this kind of stuff for a while. Uh, certain countries like China or governments like uh, those in China are way ahead of the game on stuff like that. But they tend to not be so concerned about a lot of the, uh, the little details like about human rights and discrimination and, and, and the like, that this sort of stuff is important because we've, as we've talked about in various stories in the past, how there can be accidental, uh, you know, sort of fa- you know, false positives in identifying suspects, for example, and people of color tend to be more uh, unfairly targeted because I think more like lack of training data um, and, Skin tone is also a thing, uh, you know, especially with earlier AI models when you have issues with contrast and facial features and whatnot, like darker skin you are, maybe the harder time it has at figuring out the key data points. So there have been efforts uh, to be, being made uh, on the AI research side and even on the consumer side. We looked at we, with Google last year, even with their um, photos app, trying to better represent uh, skin tones of people of color. Those sorts set, of issues you know, apply to facial recognition as well. You don't want people you know, being... Uh, uh, accidentally uh, uh, you know, accused of of crimes, being suspect for something they had nothing to do with. So, you know the the, the words like affirmative action are kind of you know, sort of not really popular nowadays. But if you have if you ensure that in the the AI training data pr- accurately represents the diversity of a, a given population, so that it is fair in doing things like facial recognition or other sorts of um, pattern recognition to ensure that there is like the whole, you know, that people are treated equally (laughs) under the law, which is more and more AI influence uh, in the law there too. Because, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of challenges in this implementation. It's difficult to completely eliminate bias from any AI systems because these systems are a reflection of the the creators who design Mm -hmm. them. And... training data on which these algorithms are trained so if the training data is skewed one way or the other that's going to you know translate into results in the real world so how do you enforce that is the question i suppose are we now going to insist that companies submit the their training data for a government regulator to to make sure that it meets their diversity equity and inclusion (laughs) like uh, guidelines like you can see how it could start getting really complicated really quickly so i think it's maybe more of like establishing some best practices i mean can you trust companies to do the right thing I, i think most most people generally speaking Want to do the right thing and want these systems to work well. It's kind of like with accessibility, for example. Like it's a, it costs extra money to make systems and websites and applications more accessible, but ultimately that ends up helping everyone because you never know when we might be temporarily uh, disabled for one reason or another due to accident, in injury, illness, and and so on. So you know, just like we all want to be treated equally when we, are, we suffer a particular condition, we also want to be treated equally no matter what our our background is I mean, cultural, religious, you know, ethnic, or otherwise. So again, the devil's in the details here, and you, you know, I hope it's not going to be like overly burdensome. But at the same time, you want to ensure that people just, you know, are treated fairly, whether AI is involved or not.
1: We only know what we know, unfortunately, from our personal experiences out in the world, and this is why we need to have these more diverse groups, perhaps, perhaps on these governing boards, perhaps when they have all these safety regulation boards for AI. The more diverse, the better, the more diverse the training systems are and the people that are building them, the better. It's only going to lead to hopefully better outputs <laughs> for these AI models. But the last thing that the execu- that the executive order kind of aimed to do here was develop best practices to minimize the harms and harness the benefits of AI when it comes to job displacement and labor standards. Boy, Tristan, I think it was episode one when we talked about some of the fears of AI, and one of those fears was job loss and job displacement. And it gets a little bit scary, like at the top of the show, did you not just say that OpenAI is looking to develop AGI that can basically do any human task? Like podcasts. we're done we actually talked episode. about that a few
0: episodes ago too didn't we We
1: did we did it's <laughs> happening Tristan. ai is coming for our jobs. are we even real who knows <laughs> that's gonna be the biggest long-term game for us at the end of like a hundred episodes maybe 300 we're just gonna tell everyone psych we weren't real the this long whole con. time the, the human con. host was a lie <laughs> <laughs>
0: So uh, obviously, this is a necessary step in addressing the impact of AI on jobs. Just like with any technological revolution, there are people that are going to be suffer in the in the, the short to medium term. I and mean, you can't just simply tell people, oh, yeah, learn to code. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's not a realistic thing. We, we talked about this when it comes to, like, West, you know, West Virginia, like coal miners, for example. Like people are in different stages in their career. They have different technical aptitude. They, there's certain types of jobs you can stream them into, reskilling and, and the like, but we need to, you know, you know, will there be some sort of social safety net to help with you know because every large technical revolution there it's invariably in the long run, it works out better for humanity. I mean aside from the risk of <laughs> apocalypse but that that aside in the long run, this is always accretive you know for for human well-being in the short term medium term, there's actual human suffering that we need to uh, address in a mindful way. so, you know, we're never—it's never going to be able to fully mitigate job displacement until you have things like universal basic income, which, of course, there's a lot of opinions either way on and stuff like that, uh, too. But the dynamics of job market are complex and influenced by many factors, like way outside of the AI conversation. And add into that too the role of immigration um, and how can some jobs be you know filled by uh, high skilled uh, immigrant workforces, you know, H1, on H one B visas and things like that. But what about low-skilled immigrant workforces, and how many jobs are still going to exist and not be um, taken away by things like automation? Whether it's in agriculture, or um, you know, warehousing, or you know, manufacturing, or what have you, there's a whole you know spectrum of skills that uh, skilled jobs or low uh, unskilled or quote-unquote unskilled jobs that are going to be affected by AI one way or the other, uh, whether purely pure AI on computer sense or AI combined with robotics and machinery as well. So, again, it's it. I think it's this is sort of thing. Well, it's we're gonna. You know, it's nice to have some best practices and whatnot, but ultimately, that's gonna. How's that gonna affect policy? What sort of incentives are there gonna be to uh, encourage employers who are say laying off people, uh, you know, to provide reskilling or retraining or you know career counseling and all those sorts of things, or is it just gonna be the uh, you know the survival of the fittest, and hopefully as a society that we are you know, trying to take care of each other a little bit, um, especially when there are so many benefits to be gained from these technologies. We want those benefits to accrue to everyone in society and help those for whom uh, it's actually harming a bit. Uh, I think just as a sort of general footnote to this whole discussion, it seems, and you've probably noticed this too, Tasia, that governments around the world are really looking to get ahead of this because mm-hmm. I think they were chastened by the whole getting blindsided by social media at web 2.0 and the social web and disinformation and misinformation and all that kind of stuff and you know kind of being late to the game to regulate and they're kind of regretting that you one could argue that it re- may have really stifled innovation there more recently there's the whole um lack of regulation on things like web web 3, web three technologies cryptocurrency and the like with a lot of uh, with a lack of real clear guidelines for a lot of crypto firms, so you're having like this uh, this regulation by enforcement by uh, another bureaucracy, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, where they're just kind of making it up as they go. And I don't think that's good for anyone either. So some clear regulations, like not overly burdensome, hopefully, but just clarity from whatever level of government deciding to get into this game, be it AI or otherwise. So clarity is good early on. Like let's not. Let's not get too crazy with the, the, we don't want like 10,000 page documents, (laughs) clear guidelines. And hopefully we can, you know, you know, navigate a way through this, what's inevitably tumultuous time over the next couple of decades. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
1: how much we trust big tech and how much we just assume that they've got their I'll just say stuff together (laughs) behind the scenes and they know what they're doing. But is big tech lying about AI's risk to humanity? Have things been overstated for nefarious reasons, perhaps?
0: Well, that's funny you should ask because <laughs> <laughs> you may have noticed over the next of the last several months, uh, various prominent AI figures, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman and uh, DeepMind CEO uh, Dennis uh, Hasebis. Uh, they've been expressing concerns over the existential risks posed by advanced AI technologies, likening them to the risks of, to those, likening the risks to those from nuclear warfare and pandemics. Again, stuff we touched on in our very first episode. They're advocating for a global focus on mitigating these extinction-level risks, calling on policymakers to pay closer attention to these challenges. Uh, Notably, this group is steering the narrative toward existential risks, uh, possibly diverting attention away from other urgent AI-related issues uh, like market dominance, antitrust considerations, data privacy, and the misuse of AI technology. So some people are thinking, hey, are... Are some of these people in charge like c- trying to like distract us by like oh yeah AI, be, we got to be careful AI might end the world even though we're in charge of these big AI companies but you know we're really concerned we need lots of regulation to make sure this doesn't happen uh, don't mind what we're doing over here with this other mm-hmm. stuff as regards like you know data handling and privacy and you know other stuff um, because one of the uh, I think truths that has emerged over the last several decades of you know, business, capitalism, and so on, on, is that regulation, believe it or not, tends to favor the large-scale incumbents. Because companies who are large and have the resources to wade through all the red tape. And what tends to happen is that when you put a bunch of regulation in a given industry, it hurts the little guys. It hurts the startups because they simply don't have the resources or, you know, the financing to get through all that stuff. And that's something that we've even experienced in our own business. We are an online training development company. We have the privilege of doing lots of work with various levels of government, but the the hoops you have to jump through to become a trusted contractor to municipal government, you know, provincial or state government, you know, federal governments, it's a lot. We, you know, you have proposals or RFP responses that are sometimes a hundred or 150 pages long and, you know, there are some so many institutions. I mean, that's 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 child's play. There's a lot of due diligence required on the on behalf of the proponents, and of course the government agencies that are reviewing all these vendors and there's add on extra layers, things like security checks and whatnot. So the more hoops to jump through, the more it favors the the big guys. So some people are saying that um, you know that these these incumbents. Uh, such as you know OpenAI and Microsoft, you know, Alphabet, slash Google, Meta, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, because they have s- such vast resources uh, and they are in these hyper-competitive environments, like they have the wherewithal to you know withstand or navigate those sorts of regulations regardless. So um, we've got this concentration of AI power within these f- tech firms. They can influence how AI evolves and is regulated. They've got the uh, bully pulpit, in a sense, and at least from a corporate perspective, to to help drive the conversation, being thought leaders and whatnot, and uh, you know, it's it's easy for them to say, oh, we need broader control and oversight and uh, and what and whatnot to be able to ethically deploy these uh, technologies. So some of these folks are being accused of uh, f- fear mongering. Mm. And um, sounds like so... you're
1: saying we've got some AI one percenters over here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: So, so a lot of these concerns have been raised by this uh, the AI, AI Godfather. Okay, now, how many AI Godfathers are there? Because I thought Jeffrey Hinton I know. was the AI Godfather. Every <laughs> but, article
1: um... we read, it's like AI Godfather, and it's a different <laughs> one.
0: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, these. Uh, These various uh, uh, battles in the U.S. highlight a growing effort to rein in the unprecedented power amassed by said big tech giants over the last uh, decade, which extends, of course, to their control over AI technologies. These legal challenges could significantly impact how AI is developed, deployed, and regulated, particularly in contexts where these technologies might harm consumers or stifle competition. So Meta's AI chief, AI godfather, uh, Jan LeCun, uh, accused DeepMind's CEO, uh, De- uh, Demi Hassabis, and other AI CEOs of lobbying to limit AI control to a few big tech companies, thereby potentially sidelining open source AI initiatives. And uh, Hassabis retorted that DeepMind wasn't attempting to achieve regulatory capture, but was discussing the best approaches to AI development and regulation.
1: Well, of course, that's his answer. <laughs> we're just... Oh, you caught to, me, guys.
0: We're just trying to help. We're just, we're just, we're just trying to do the right thing. And again, you, 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 you hear Elon Musk talking about, you know, he he thinks the biggest threat to humanity is AI. But he's got a lot of interest in AI too. He's got a Dojo supercomputer, which is building AI for Tesla cars and and you know other things. He's got the Optimus uh, robots and and the like. Um, Anyhow, so top AI researchers are advocating for a significant portion of AI research and development funding to be allocated toward ensuring the safety and ethical use of AI systems. So this suggests a growing recognition uh, within the AI community about the importance of safety and ethics, which could influence regulatory frameworks and funding priorities in the AI domain. So funding, not just private funding, but we're also talking about like government funding. And so this all goes back to talking about the executive order from Joe Biden. And other activities that might be happening this very week, which we will leave for the very end. Regulation aside, fear-mongering aside, regulatory capture aside, shall we end on a slightly lighter note? Which I I mean, maybe the world won't end thanks to AI due to one popular science communicator?
1: Well, I mean, Bill Nye did have a show, Bill Nye Saves the World. It was a Netflix (laughs) show. So
0: Help us, Bill Nye, you're our only hope. Has it come to that,
1: really? (laughs) Pretty much. I'm like, please, Bill, explain this for the rest of us. Yeah. At the risk of this being a total fear-based episode and me hitting the panic button, why not us just have a little fun moment? This past week, Google Bard Asked Bill Nye, the science guy, 20 questions on how AI can avoid the end of the world. And this kind of really reminded me of our first, our little baby first episode, Tristan, of Will AI Save the World or Kill Us All?
0: Still TBD. <laughs>
1: still, we still don't have the answer. <laughs> episode 11, we do not have the answer. But you know, these questions included things like how should we ensure AI is used for good and not harm? What should we be teaching our children about AI? What's the most important ethical consideration for AI development and, and things like this? So I believe this was last Tuesday at a CNBC Technology Executive Council summit on AI. A lot of
0: Sounds like a lot of thought Ooh. leaders there, too. Some,
1: correct. Well, Bill Nye said that the rapid rise of AI means, quote, everyone in middle school, All the way through to getting a PhD in computer science, we'll have to learn about AI. Sounds reasonable. It does sound reasonable. Because remember, Mm -hmm. it wasn't this many years ago where it was like, everyone's going to need to learn how to code. Now it's like, everyone's going to need to learn about AI. We have to learn how
0: to use no-code tools now. (laughs) Pretty much. But even like 30 years ago, everyone's going to need to know how to use a computer. Well, yeah. Most people have computers in their pockets now. So we're all using computers one way or another. So... Exactly, you know, and the AI tools—it's just like they're just—they're just tools, right? So if we're not using them because of some sort of you know, objection, philosophical or otherwise, will we be? Will we actually do more harm to our own prospects and livelihoods than good?
1: Well, I found it it a pretty interesting. We've got a seven-minute video that we can link to for for our lovely listeners, where Bill Nye responds to Bard's twenty questions. And it's a little bit, you know, you've, you you used the word somewhat cringe. I use the word somewhat, you know, bill nigh interesting answers. But he had kind of some some answers were really quick, simple answers. So I think he was understanding how he needed to continue to prompt bard if you will like not talking to another actual human um in order i, to I just it. love the, di-
0: the, the, the the diversity equity and inclusion happening right there because it was google bard they actually mentioned chat gpt and they said oh well, actually we're using google bard now so it's like you know they're
1: they're they're you
0: know spreading the love let's say
1: there you go Exactly. So let's to another tech giant. To another one of the one of the big guns, you know. So let's link that for people below because it was just kind of interesting and maybe maybe leave everyone on a bit of a more positive note. That don't worry, Mr. Bill Nye, everyone's favorite science guy is <laughs> is going to calm calm our little hearts once again. I wonder if Bill Nye is as big in other countries outside of like North America.
0: I suspect they have their own Favorite science communicators? You know, that would be something
1: you, we'd like to know. Yeah, tweet tell us. us. Tweet us. Write us at feedback at AI Name Show. I want to know. Do you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> if you are outside of North America, is Bill Nye big where you are? Just curious.
0: I remember. I got, I remember Bill Nye, the science guy, from the late '80s, early '90s. He was on a Seattle-based sketch comedy show called uh, Almost Live. It used to air after Saturday Night Live, so it was like. 1 in the morning, I think. Wow. It was, or was it before? It Was either before or after, I can't remember exactly, but it was it was fun because it was like Seattle, so it was pretty close to Vancouver here, so it was a lot of, you know, regional jokes. Uh, he was at Boeing for 9 years up until 86 when he he quit and uh to pursue a comedy career and then got into science communication and the uh, early to mid-90s. So he's interesting a fellow and he's learned a lot along the way. But he's you know, reasonably effective science communicator. Of course, we've got Neil deGrasse Tyson as well. So yeah, to, is, t- to take his question. Don't say
1: reasonably effective. He's effective because if he can make me understand <laughs> certain concepts, yeah, yeah, he can make any lay person <laughs> understand. It's Bill Nye, the science but, guy. I'm pretty sure that was the song yeah, but for his the, original but, show. But then
0: it's like, you think about the, the modern generation of science communicators on YouTube, for example, let alone TikTok. But on YouTube, there are so many great uh, channels like Physics Girl and Veritasium and you know, uh, Hank Green his uh, you know, Complexly. And there's, there, there are so many science communicators on YouTube now is, is how relevant is Bill Nye. But anyway, to your question, Tasia, for our international uh, listeners or viewers, do you know who Bill Nye is? Do you know who, uh, do, do, who who are popular science communicators where you are? Who's talking about AR AI to the general public where you live? Let us know at feedback at ainamedtheshow.com. And thank you so much for tuning in to us this week. Next week uh, on AI Named The Show, we're going to be talking about the AI Safety Summit, which is occurring as we speak, as we're recording this very episode. The AI Safety Summit is happening in the UK, and there's all sorts of bigwigs there, including political leaders, tech leaders, Elon's there, of course. So we'll have lots to uh, dig through on that and uh, cover in next week's episode of uh, AI Name the Show.
1: We are still new, only episode, what is this, 11. 11? So we would still love your feedback, as Tristan said. You can email feedback at ainamedthisshow.com, and you can also find us anywhere you get your podcasts. It's so exciting. So be sure to give us a follow, share this episode, and of course, leave us a review. We're also on all the socials. We're at AINamedThisShow everywhere. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. I'm still calling it Twitter. You might be calling it X, but we're on all the things. Thank you so much for joining us once again.
0: AI and goodbye.